Today's scripture reading is from the book of Jonah, chapter 4, verses 5 through 11. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. The word of God for the people of God. It was not one of my finer moments. I had planned in June to travel to Dallas for a few days with my brother uh, to sort of revisit some places that we had lived and our grandparents had lived. It was an opportunity to sort of remember and give thanks to God for good memories and loving grandparents. Well, some things came up and Brad had to change his plans. He was going to show up in Dallas a couple of days later. Fine, I'll go visit some friends in Austin that I haven't seen for a while and come back to Dallas and meet him when he arrives. So I get to the airport. And we wait, and we wait, and we wait, because this was the Sunday night when gigantic thunderstorms were rolling through Dallas, and the planes delayed, and the planes delayed, and finally canceled at 11.30 at night. No worries, there'll be a replacement flight the next day, I'm told. I get up and uh, call the airline and find out, no, sorry, that flight is also canceled. Now you're flying out on Tuesday. Okay, fine. So, no flight. Two-day delay, not seeing my friends in Austin, but at least the car rental company has assured me they're going to hold my reservation for 48 hours. Did any of you see the Seinfeld episode where Jerry has a car reservation, and it doesn't work out the way he'd planned, and he takes out some frustration on the car rental agent? I have a reservation for a mid-sized car. I'm sorry we're all out of mid-sized cars. But I made a reservation. The reservation guarantees that the car is here. That's what the reservation is for. I know what the reservation is for, sir. I don't think you do. Because if you did, I'd have a car. And I don't. See, you can take the reservation. Anyone can take reservations. But can you hold the reservation? Except Jerry was actually a lot more self-controlled than I was. 
I was angry. I was frustrated. They were dishonest. They'd been unhelpful. They were uncaring. They simply said, there's nothing we can do. We have no cars. We have no solution. And they were willing to just strand me in the airport at Dallas. I kind of wanted to see God bring some smiting down on them, right? <laughs> like, have you ever been in a situation like that? Maybe you've experienced some hurt, real hurt from someone. You've been wronged, or, or it's the injustices in the world, or fears or concerns that are hanging over you that are kind of centered around some people or some person, and, you know, maybe God doesn't need to actually take them out, but you're not exactly excited to see God do good to them, and you'd be fine if you never saw them again. We're continuing in this series in the book of Jonah, the world's worst missionary. It's kind of a mirror for us, a reflection of God's own prodigal prophets. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to that uh, small book of Jonah in the Old Testament. And uh, we're finishing up this book of Jonah today. We've seen Jonah run away from God, reject him, stiff-arm God, I want nothing to do with you, squander his gifts. But he repents, he comes back, he, he obeys, and, and he kind of reminds us of the younger son in that parable that Jesus tells of the prodigal, right? That's in chapters 1 and 2. But now in chapters 3 and 4, Jonah looks a lot like the older brother in the parable, doesn't he? An outwardly obedient, but inwardly self-righteous and angry man is upset that God is showing mercy to undeserving people. And he hopes for their destruction. Wow. By now, are you sick of Jonah? I mean, there's a part of us that would be fine if God just sort of takes him out of the equation because of all that we see in him. And yet, throughout this whole story, it's ultimately God that's clearly the hero. God is the one who has been working everything in Jonah's life to bring him to repentance, to humble him, and to help him to see the ugliness in his own heart in contrast to God's heart of compassion and patience. And so instead of condemning him, instead of judging him, God pursues Jonah with patience and loving kindness and compassion the same kind that he shows to the Ninevites and to everyone. And I think God is doing that because he wants us to be scandalized in a good way with the undeserved compassion that God shows to prodigals like Jonah and, and like us so that we would reflect more of his loving kindness and his compassion. So a quick review. Not the whole book, but just what we've been in the last few weeks. Jonah takes this message to Nineveh, simple and frightening. Forty days and Nineveh will be overturned. And amazingly, the people hear it and they respond. They repent, they put on sackcloth, they fast, they turn from their wicked ways. And then when God sees how they turn from their wicked ways, not just lip service, they actually stop doing evil God, in verse 
10 of chapter 3, relents from the calamity, the disaster that he had declared. And instead of joy at people's salvation, at repentance, chapter 4, verse 1, it greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. Why? Because Jonah prays, this is exactly what I said. You are slow to anger and compassionate and gracious and full of loving kindness. So just let me die, Lord, if that's the way you're going to be to those people. Jonah's anger is supposed to be amazing and shocking to us. That, that someone who claims to know and love God would actually be angry with him for being compassionate. And not only that, God is the object of Jonah's anger. Not just someone else. Jonah's not angry with himself or with other people, but with a holy, perfect, and righteous God. Jonah protests God's kindness. And he's so disgusted that God is compassionate to those people that he'd rather die than live. Miroslav Volf is a writer who grew up in uh, the former Yugoslavia, and his book, Exclusion and Embrace, grew partially out of his experience in the, the horrible civil war in the former Yugoslavia in the 1990s. He saw his former countrymen lobbing shells at people lining up to get food and snipers killing people indiscriminately in the streets. And these were fellow countrymen. Our natural response is to react to that with exclusion and hatred and, and judgment, to, to see them as the other. They're the enemy. They are doing wicked, evil things, and they are not like us. They are people who will never be like us. They are inferior to us. And so the other, the enemy, must be dealt with by elimination, or by assimilation, or by domination, or by abandonment. Listen to what Wolf writes. The angrier you are at the injustice you suffer, the blinder you will be to the injustice you inflict. We tend to translate the wrongness of our enemies into a conviction of our own rightness. Wolf is not saying that all sins are equal and that there's nothing to legitimately complain about. He's not pretending that there's not injustice in the world. But do you see how this is getting lived out in Jonah? Do you do good to be angry, Jonah? Jonah is so convinced of his rightness and the wrongness of these other people that he can't imagine that he could have anything wrong in himself. And the gentleness of God's rebuke, this question to Jonah, is meant to help us remember that God is gracious not only to pagan Ninevites, but to prodigal prophets like Jonah and like us. Well, that doesn't get through to Jonah, so he goes outside of the city where he builds a little mini grandstand for himself for the spectacle that is sure to follow Nineveh's destruction. Here are some people that need some good old-fashioned wrath of God dropped on them. 
And Jonah does not want to miss out. But instead, God causes a plant to grow up overnight, to be a shade over the head, to comfort this angry prophet. Amazingly, now Jonah, for the first time in the book, is happy, extremely happy, overjoyed at this plant. Because now, finally, something is going right. And God is being good to me like I deserve. But then God sends a worm to destroy the plant. And a scorching wind to burn Jonah's head. And the older I get, the more I relate to that. It's getting a little personal here. Do you see the irony here? While Jonah is sitting outside the city waiting for the Ninevites to be burned by God's judgment... That very attitude is what has brought his own kind of burning, an external torment that matches what's going on in his heart. Earlier, Jonah wanted to die because God treated his enemies the way Jonah wanted to be treated. And now Jonah wants to die because God is treating Jonah the way he wants his enemies treated. Do you see the irony there? And for a second time, God graciously challenges this angry prophet. Do you do good to be angry? And he said, I have good reason to be angry, even enough to die. But God gets the final word in this book. You had compassion on a plant, which... You did not work for, you did not cause to grow. It came up overnight and it died overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, this great city, with more than 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left? They're spiritually blind. They're morally confused. They're as lost as they can be. And many cattle. I love how the book ends. The cattle are covered with sackcloth earlier and now they show up at the end of the book again. A few comparisons, I think, are helpful for us between God's compassion and our compassion, God's compassion and Jonah's compassion. Jonah has compassion on a plant, essentially an object. It's a thing. He's willing for a city to die. God cares about people. He cares about people made in his image. Jonah has compassion on a plant in which he had no investment, no relationship, He had nothing to do with it. God has compassion on people whom he created to know him and to love him and to experience his blessing and and the fullness of his life. Jonah has compassion over the demise of a plant. God has compassion over the eternal damnation of people who are heading towards judgment and separation from him apart from his grace and kindness. The passing of a plant has no real eternal significance. No offense to any gardeners or anything, but in the grand scheme of things, I mean, God is weighing this against the eternal judgment of people. God has compassion on the innocent. Jonah couldn't care less. He's willing to see the innocent and the wicked die. I mean, here's a whole city that has turned to God in faith. Maybe that doesn't mean 100%. Maybe there still are some sinful, hard-hearted people there. But certainly the city is full of 
people who don't know their right hand from as well as cattle. You're going you're gonna to burn up the cows too, Jonah? You don't care? God cares about everything that he has made. God loves what he has made and the people that he's made and the creation that we live in. Jonah has compassion on himself ultimately. And God has compassion on others. Jonah's compassion is not even really centered on the plant, but on what the plant provided him, some comfort and some relief, some air conditioning for him. That was the value that the plant had. Jonah had no compassion for other plants. I mean, Jonah didn't complain that God was going to burn up, you know, the sagebrush over in the corner. No, he cared about this one because it was about him. His compassion was Jonah-centered. And God's compassion is for people, for those who have sinned, for those who have wronged him, for those who are lost. God cares for all that he has made because that is his nature, because God is love. So what is Jonah's real problem? And maybe the one that God is trying to point out to us in this too. It seems that Jonah's problem is selfishness, right? It's all about Jonah's little world and Jonah concerns and Jonah problems and Jonah offenses. He wants God's goodness for himself and not for anyone else. But I think Jonah's selfishness is really only symptomatic. It's a symptom of something much deeper. I think his real grievance with God is his compassion. Jonah is mad that God is compassionate and gracious and kind. Why? Because the nature of compassion, the nature of grace is undeserved goodness. Undeserved. Grace means we have no ownership, we have no claim on God's goodness or kindness or blessing because we've done nothing to earn it. And Jonah didn't like grace because it's like charity. I don't want a handout. And so the recipients of grace are people who recognize that they are unworthy and undeserving. Jonah could not see himself as unworthy. I do deserve it, God. Jonah, yes, is suffering from racial pride, ethnic pride, religious pride. We're better than those Ninevites, and so therefore we deserve, somehow God is obligated to give us as his people what we think is good for us. The Ninevites are unworthy, which is exactly why Jonah protests God's compassion to them. And because grace and compassion is unmerited and it's given to those who are unworthy, no one can claim it. That is, there's nothing I can do to get more of it. There's nothing I can do to obligate God to provide it. As God put it, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will have compassion to those on whom I will show compassion. We can't control it. We can't manage it. And that frustrates Jonah. And then the other problem for Jonah is that the goal of grace is not our happiness, but our holiness. Jonah liked the plant because it made him happy. He didn't care about it making him holy. He didn't care about the fish being part of God trying to make him holy. He just wanted to be happy. He wanted out of the fish. He wanted out of this job. He wanted away from Nineveh. The plant made Jonah happy, but it did nothing to make him holy, so God took it away. 
Grace is not given to make us feel good, to satisfy our desires, but to bring us closer to God and make us more like Himself. And so, therefore, then, if God's goal in being gracious to us is to make us like Himself, that means He's going to use not just pleasurable things, but painful things to accomplish that purpose in our lives. Most of us grow spiritually more in painful trials than pleasant circumstances. God saves Jonah from drowning, not in a very pleasant way. I mean, if Jonah got to choose how he was going to be rescued, it's probably not going to be by spending three days stewing in the gastric juices of a gigantic fish. I mean, it can't have been very ennobling to be vomited up on the shore by a fish. I think God even uses that language intentionally. It's supposed to be humbling. God uses the destruction of the plant and the sweltering sun, painful, painful means to try to bring Jonah to himself. It's not selfishness. It's not ethnic pride. It's not stubbornness. It's self-righteousness that is Jonah's problem and our problem often. Grace is offensive to Jonah and to all of us naturally. Jonah disdained grace even when God is being gracious to him because to accept grace is to mean I don't deserve it. Only the undeserving need grace and Jonah could not admit that he was undeserving. Listen to what Miroslav Volf writes again. Forgiveness flounders when I exclude the enemy from the community of humans, even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. Does that make sense? There's no forgiveness when I can see the people that have wronged me as somehow subhuman and not deserving of God's grace because I'm not a sinner who needs God's grace. How can a child of God be upset that God shows grace and kindness to bring people into his kingdom because he believes that that's something you earn, something you deserve, and those people don't deserve it, and I do. How can a prophet be upset when God takes away a plant that belongs to God alone only by believing that deep down he deserves the plant that somehow the plant belongs to him, that it's right for him to be comforted in his anger and his bitterness. After all I've done for you, God, this is how you repay me. You take away the one thing that made me happy. The root problem of God's prodigal prophet is self-righteousness. And Jonah's meant to be an object lesson for us. Because we're often God's prodigal children like Jonah. A sure sign that we are growing more self-righteous is that we despise grace. Because to the self-righteous, compassion is demeaning and pathetic. And I don't want other people to experience it. It's scary how easily that kind of self-righteous anger welled up in me when those people at the car agency or when God took away what I deserved 
After all I've suffered, God, I'm trying, I'm on the sabbatical, I'm trying to be with you, I'm trying to have a meaningful time where I can thank you for all the good things you've done in my life, and godly grandparents, and this is how you treat me. Those people didn't follow the rules, they're cheating me, it's not fair, they're uncaring, it's wrong. God, I don't deserve this. And I was loud and angry about it. And God humbly, graciously, lovingly spoke into me through a man next to me. Can you please lower your voice? That was humbling. I was ashamed, really. Those people are trying to do their jobs. I mean, they didn't go out of their way to ruin my day. Yeah, there was some miscommunication on their end, but it's not like they got up saying, like, how can we ruin Jeff's experience? How can we make him suffer? They didn't deserve my anger. They didn't deserve my wrath. And it had been so easy to see that, the, you know, the car rental agency as an enemy, as someone other, as someone less, someone deserving wrath and judgment. Not compassion or kindness, but God graciously helped me humble myself. And I was able to acknowledge that, acknowledge what I had done wrong, confess it to those people, and ask forgiveness for people probably within a 50-foot radius. I mean, it was... Did you notice the book of Jonah does not end neatly? There's no resolution here. And that has to be intentional because God leaves it hanging for us to write our own ending to the story. I think that in itself is a clue that we are meant to see how closely do I really look like Jonah here? And what am I going to do with that? So what do we do with this? Some, some applications. Resisting and rejecting the grace of God is probably just as much a problem for us as it was for Jonah. We may not be as honest as Jonah was, I mean, at least as outspoken, like maybe we don't get in God's face and just tell him, you're a bad God and I wish you'd just kill me if this is what you're going to do. But maybe we tend to get angry with God for some of the similar reasons. He takes something from us or denies something from us that we think we deserve. God, if you were really good, you would do this in my life, or you would keep this from happening in my life. When we think other people are unworthy or undeserving, and we get angry that God is doing something good for them that it seems like he's not doing for me. Anyone ever been there? We get angry when God takes away some blessing from us that we think we have a right to. You know, we Americans, uh, boy, it's easy for us to uh, take credit for our prosperity and our security and our peace and our achievement. You know, it's because we're smart. It's because we're moral. It's because God loves this nation maybe more than he loves other nations. It's our hard work. It's our morality, our intelligence. And so, therefore, conversely, we can excuse ourselves from sharing that wealth and security and prosperity with other people because they haven't worked as hard as we have. They're not as smart as we have. They're obviously not as moral as we have. 
And if we were in their situations, we would obviously do a better job living their lives than they are. So they don't deserve the help or compassion or blessing or the resources or whatever that God has given to us because we deserve them. Our health and wealth and security and prosperity and children going to bed at night with full bellies and not worrying about bombs falling on their heads are those things that we deserve, that we have earned, and that other people haven't and don't? I mean, if they're gifts, if they're gifts of God's grace, then God is free to give those to whomever he chooses, and he's free to not give them to whomever he chooses. And he's also free to withhold them from those who ask for them, for his own reasons, his own wisdom, which is beyond us. We went through the book of Job a little while ago. You remember that statement of Job? After all these disasters have fallen, after God has allowed all this suffering to come into his life, and his wife says, just curse God and die. Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I will return. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Whether God bestows wealth and health or whether he sustains us in trials to draw us closer to him and to deepen our character, it's all grace. It's all grace. It's all undeserved. Matthew 9 gives us this great picture of God's compassion for us in the person of his son, Jesus. Jesus is going around all their cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing all kinds of diseases and sicknesses, and seeing the multitudes. He was moved with compassion for them saying they are like sheep without a shepherd, harassed and helpless. And then Jesus goes on to say, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. You see how the compassion of Christ for lost people characterizes his life, his heart, his ministry. You know, we talk about the passion of Christ, the, the last few days of Jesus' life and his ultimate suffering and death for us. But that's ultimately an outworking of the compassion of Christ. The reason that Jesus does that is because of his heart of compassion, his willingness to take on himself the sin and the brokenness and the suffering in order to redeem us, to reconcile us, to change us. He looks on us as helpless and harassed, and that's what takes him to the cross. He sees people that are downcast and distressed, harried, tired, troubled, discouraged, maybe some to the point of despair, some who feel hopeless, some who feel helpless, some who are weighed down under a burden of guilt and shame, some who don't have any idea where to turn or, or where hope or life or joy could be found, some who are afraid or lonely or anxious, some who are gripped with anger or bitterness. People who are addicted to all kinds of things in their lives. Financial, physical, emotional, relational, spiritual troubles. Broken in mind, in body, and spirit. Some of them have broken laws. And worst of all, people are lost apart from knowing God. We don't know our right hand from our left. And we're heading into an eternity separated from God who is the source of all love and goodness and truth. 
and moved with compassion for people. Jesus is willing to step into that mess and take it on himself. He doesn't respond with condemnation or indignation or rejection or alienation. He doesn't say, well, you made your bed, now lie in it. Well, that's what you get. You should have done a better job obeying. Jesus could say, you undeserving enemies of God, go into the wrath of God eternally. Instead, he says, I will go for you. I will take the wrath of the Father for your sin on myself so that you can be reconciled, you can be restored. And then, and then you become part of the family, part of the mission to take that message out to others who also don't deserve it. Jesus' posture towards a broken world is to say, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and find rest for your souls. Take my yoke on you. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And we hear Jesus say, I came to give my life as a ransom for many. And then he invites us in a similar way to take up our crosses and follow him out into a world that just like us does not deserve compassion and yet is the object of God's compassion and grace and care. If you have experienced this compassion, Jesus sends us out to take it to others who don't know it and who desperately need it and who also don't deserve it, just like we don't deserve it. There's no room for God's people to become bitter, jealous, jaded, callous, cynical, apathetic, uncaring, if anything, Jonah is a picture of sloth, believe it or not. Not doing nothing, but uncaring. I just don't care. And Jesus pulls us out of that pit to see ourselves as people saved by grace and kept by grace so that our hearts are now burdened and broken and moved out like Jesus to people that need to know that compassion. That's the whole final part of this fourth chapter of Jonah, isn't it? It's all about God's grace, God's compassion, His concern for the people right in front of God's prophet who were lost and dying and who desperately need to hear a message from God's people. So who are you burdened for? Who's the object of your compassion? Who are you reaching out to with the undeserved grace and kindness that God has poured into your life? Jesus knows all the sins of the pagans and all the sins of his prodigal prophets and he comes to pay for them all to cover them all. He knows the things we've done in our past, the things we're maybe trapped in right now. He knows it all. And his posture is, I know you're a mess. Come to me. Repent. Turn from it. Trust in me. Believe in me to find forgiveness and hope and purpose and new life. 
God's grace has come to us in Jesus Christ and he graciously gives this gift of eternal life to all who believe and all who commit themselves to him. And in doing that, we sign ourselves up to be the prophets, the messengers, the ambassadors that God sends out just like he sent his son to seek and save the lost, the undeserving people that God has compassion on. It's by faith in Christ that God forgives our sins, that God destroys, disarms our self-righteousness and makes us righteous in His sight. I want us to take just a couple of minutes as we close for a little bit of time of silent reflection. Maybe over this message, maybe over this series that we've had in Jonah. Take some time to think, are are there ways that I'm just running away from what I know God has called me to do or where he wants me to go? Am am I stuck in a difficult place and and it feels hopeless and, and I need God to just speak a word of hope into it? Is there something that God's called me to do that I'm that I'm just gritting my teeth about and I really need God to help me change my attitude about it? Maybe even more importantly, are there people that God has put around me, that I'm gritting my teeth about. And I really need God to soften my heart and help me have his compassion. Let's take a few minutes and just pray, and then I'll come back and close us in prayer. Father, thank you for this time that we've had in this book of Jonah these last weeks it can be hard to see ourselves sometimes in the way that uh, in what we see about Jonah but uh, thank you that you are the hero not us, not Jonah thank you for your grace your kindness, your patience, your compassion to pagans and prodigals alike Lord, help us. Help us to uh, lay down bitterness and self-righteousness and pride and sloth and envy, greed, all of it. That you would be our treasure, our hope. And that, Father, as our hearts are gripped again by your compassion and kindness, undeserved goodness to us, that, Father, that would stir our hearts and move us all the more to be prophets, to be ambassadors of your truth and kindness and grace to other undeserving people whom you also love. Thank you. Thank you that Jesus is our hope, our guarantee, the one who empowers us, the one who changes us, the one who goes with us. We pray in his name. Amen.